I want to extend my Thanksgiving welcome and greeting to each and every one of you, as well as the beginning and the marking of time as we march into that season of Advent, that moment where we begin our journey towards the manger, where we begin our journey towards Christmas in the anticipation of God's coming and being born in our lives in Jesus Christ. I want to begin this series that we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks of Advent. I want to begin by telling you a story of when I was in elementary school. I was in the sixth grade and I got to participate in the play and the musical Peter Pan. And I didn't get to be Captain Hook, which I really wanted to be. I didn't get to be Peter Pan, which I desperately wanted to be. No, I was that middle child John. I basically was walking around in a Texas heat with a long nightgown on with a top hat and carrying around a black umbrella. I was not the main character. I wasn't even kind of the second main character or the third main character. I felt like I was kind of a part of the set, that I was a prop in the background. I had very few lines. Most of the lines I said with a Texas drawl, appropriately so, because that's where I grew up. But of course, there was this one line that out of the middle of nowhere uh, that I said, I say, Peter, can you really fly? And the whole audience erupted in laughter because it was this random moment of a really bad British accent. Well, one of the things that I remember about us working on this play is because I was kind of frustrated because of the role that I didn't get and because I was in the background, During rehearsals, I kept trying to find ways to kind of inch my way forward to be more of a star in the show. And as I kept to move my way forward, it was either verbally or non-verbally trying to assert myself. And I remember um, one of the adults pulling me aside and I remember exactly what she said because she said, if you're trying to steal the show, no one's going to see the story. And even in my little egotistical sixth grade mind that really wanted to be the star of the show, I understood what she was saying. That if we were all competing for who was going to be the star of the show, that the story was going to get lost. So this was a really valuable lesson for me young in life. In a word, what she was telling me what I needed was humility. I needed to be able to have the idea that the story was larger than my personality. You know, one of the things that Christmas does for me every single year is that it recalibrates my life to the reality that there is a larger story in play and that God wants me to be a part of that story, but I'm not the main character in this drama. You know, one of the things that we discover at Christmas is that there's all kinds of famous people like Mary and Joseph and, of course, Jesus. And there's lots of people who are kind of like the main actors in the drama. But there's also these what I like to call best supporting actors. These are people who kind of fade into the backward and backward kind of area of the set and the scenery of what we're talking about at Christmas. And they don't get a lot of airtime. And yet they teach us, and if we're paying attention to the way that they live their lives, they teach us some of the humility that is required for us to be able to enter into and to experience the Christmas drama and story. And so let me share with you kind of our roadmap of what we're going to be doing as we go through this Best Supporting Actors series. We're going to be talking about Zechariah, Elizabeth, Simeon, and Anna and how each of them cultivate a sense of silence, hospitality, availability, 
and persistence and how each and every one of these characters and each and every one of these attributes helps to cultivate a strong sense of humility, which is something that we desperately need, not just at Christmas time, but in this moment in time for us as a community and as individuals and as a country today. And so let's dive into the story of Zechariah. All of these stories come to us from the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And this is the story that begins with Zechariah. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you will call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Zechariah asked the angel, how could I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. The priest Zechariah has hit the lottery. There's about 18,000 priests during the lifetime of Zechariah. So he's about 18,000 other people who also have priestly responsibilities. These were not professional clergy. These are people who had other jobs who would volunteer for segments and different times in the temple. Of that, at any given time, there were probably like 800 priests working and volunteering at the temple. One day of the year, a priest was selected randomly in order to be able to go into the temple to be able to go and to burn incense for the Holy of Holies days. And so Zechariah has basically struck the lottery. I mean, he's basically allowed to go in. And so he puts on all the priestly garments and he goes into the holiest of places and there in that place where God's presence is said to uniquely dwell, Zechariah is told that in his old age, he is going to have what he wanted more than anything else in his life. He's going to have a child. He's going to have an heir. He's going to have a son. Zechariah doesn't believe it. And because of that, the angel Gabriel says to him, you are going to get the silent treatment. For nine months, Zechariah, all the way that John the Baptist is being nurtured in Elizabeth's womb, 
for that nine months, while John is being nurtured in that womb, God's word is going to be nurtured in Zachariah's heart. Silence is one of the primary spiritual disciplines and means by which we become humble before God and enter into his larger story. I want to share you how with you today how silence can help cultivate a spirit of humility in your life and mine. And so let me share with you these four things. Silence teaches us to listen. It ushers us into wonder. It strips away our pretense. And it reminds us that we're not alone. First of all, let's talk about how silence teaches us to listen. Zechariah heard the words that the angel Gabriel said but he wasn't really listening to what God was supposed to be speaking to him. I love uh, this book that came out earlier this year. A woman by the name of Kate Murphy wrote a book that's called You're Not Listening. And at the beginning of this book, she says, there's something about our culture that prizes projection or what we project over what we absorb. In other words, our culture values what we are able to articulate and to share with others, not what we're able to assimilate and to take in and to be able to understand. And so she says, one of the things that you'll know is that you can be in school and that you can get a degree in speech communication or that you can be a part of a debate society. But have you ever thought or imagined that there would be an empathy society? You can be a part of organizations like Toastmasters that help you to hone your public speaking articulation skills and help you to be able to get your word out there. And there's all kinds of different efforts and marketing and being able to publish yourself and to be able to you know, project who you are and your ideas to the world. And while all of this is going on, what gets lost in the shuffle is the other half of the communication cycle is that we are not taught to listen. We don't prize in leaders and in people the ability to not just to hear what they have to say and to think about what we're going to say next, but to really absorb within us and to understand where they're coming from. It was back in 1952 where a famous pianist by the name of David Tudor was actually going to perform in Woodstock. And while he was there and he sat at the keys and the congregation or the gathering there was, was filled with anticipation for what he was going to play, this is one of the songs that he played. It's a song by, the uh, by John Cage and it's entitled Four Minutes and 33 Seconds. This was a song that, and you can look at this on YouTube yourself to find it, uh, this was a song that was the average length of a song at the time. And when David Tudor sat down at the majestic keys, he closed the top of the piano and he sat there in silence for four minutes and 33 seconds. In other words, it was a performance, but it was a performance of silence. Now, the point of that silence was not an end unto itself, but to help to kind of clear the deck so that they might be able to hear and to tune their ears to listening to something that they wouldn't have been able to have heard before had they not been paying attention because of the silence. In 2016, my wife Kelly had open heart surgery 
And because she was so young with this open heart surgery and her aortic, aortic valve had to be replaced, they put in a mechanical valve. And one of the things that we discovered on the other side of the surgery is that if it's really quiet and if you're really listening, if it's really still, you can hear the faint click of my wife's heart. One of the things that I love is the fact that in going through that period of time of praying and supporting and coming alongside my wife during that journey, I love the gentle reminder of that click of the gift that is her life. And that if I'm really listening, I can hear her heart. That is a metaphor for me as a husband that I need to be a better listener and not just to project and to get my ideas across, but that I need to find those moments of silence so that I can really listen. So the first thing that silence does in cultivating humility is that it teaches us to listen. And the second thing that it does is that it ushers us in to wonder. For Zechariah, over the course of those nine months, his hunger for the mystery and the fullness of God began to grow. I don't know about you, but in November of this year, it was such a treat to get to watch the Masters in the fall. It had been a long time in getting to wait for that golf tournament, which is kind of like that rite of passage in the spring. And my favorite thing that I saw on TV with the Masters this year wasn't actually a part of the competition itself, as great as that was. My favorite thing that I saw this year was a little promotional intro to the beginning of one of the days of the competition where they featured this golfer, a guy by the name of Kevin Hall, who is the first PGA Tour death golfer to compete. And Kevin Hall, with his beautiful sign language, articulated a welcome to the Masters. And what was fantastic about this was that they were painting a picture. And again, you can go to the internet and see this for yourself. It's so captivating is that what would it be like this year without the crowds, without the cheers, without the applause? What was it going to be like without the patrons? Well, there was one who would actually know what it's like to play in a golf tournament without all of those noises. And so they had Kevin describing and helping to build the wonder and the majesty and the mystery of what it means to be able to be in that place. If you and I are not just listening, if we are participating in the spiritual gift of silence, something begins to burn and to grow within us. There's something about the majesty and the wonder of God that in his word will continue to rise within us if we will be willing to be silent. In fact, there's a place in Helsinki that tries to capture this for people. This is one of the busiest places and intersections in the city, and it's known as the Compi Chapel. They decided to build an ecumenical Christian chapel right in one of the busiest sections of town. And as you can see from the construction on the inside, it's not really built for kind of large corporate worship. It's built for mostly small personal reflection. It's affectionately known as the Chapel of Silence because it minimizes the echoes and the sounds of the world. And it's almost like a little bit of a simple 
sensory deprivation, a time of sound and of sight coming together to be able to create that little cocoon of a sanctuary. You and I will need to not only learn how to listen, we will also need to learn how to be quiet so that we can be ushered into those sacred spaces, those quiet spaces, and where God will fully meet us in his mystery. And so the first thing that silence does is that it teaches us to listen, then it ushers us into wonder. And then thirdly, silence strips away our pretense. The angel Gabriel's chief complaint against Zechariah was his arrogance, his disbelief. And so what's slowly going to happen in Zechariah in his period of being silent is that God is going to strip away his pride all of the scaffolding that Zechariah uses and his success and his identity and to help him to truly understand who he really is. I remember the first time I went to a monastery for a silent retreat. One of the first assignments was a 48-hour period of time in which you were to be completely silent. And yet, here was the kicker, silent and yet in community. So yes, there were long periods of solitude for me, but then there were also the times of the meals where people were brought together and you would eat together at a table, but you were not allowed to speak. I gotta tell you, it's one of the most awkward things you have ever tried, to sit at a table and to eat in silence with a group of people. And what I didn't realize, which I came to understand over time, was how much I use my words in order to manage other people's impressions of me. And that that cheapens our words. And so that one of the goals of a period of silence, particularly in like those monastic disciplines, one of the goals of silence is for us not to use our words in that kind of way. I love how Richard Foster writes it. He puts it like this. He says, the tongue is our most powerful weapon of manipulation. A frantic stream of words flows from us because we are in a constant process of adjusting our public image. We fear so deeply what we think other people see in us that we talk in order to straighten out their understanding. Silence is one of the deepest disciplines of the spirit simply because it puts the stopper on all self-justification. One of the fruits of silence is the freedom to let God be our justifier. We don't need to straighten others out. God puts a stopper on our self-righteousness, our self-congratulation, our self-justification. God in silence strips away all of that and we realize that we are not the sum total of what we say or how we are able to prop up other people's impressions of us. We are who we are before Almighty God. And we only feel the weight of that when we're willing to be still, to be silent before Him and even before others. And so silence in bringing us closer to the humility of Christ, it teaches us to listen, it ushers us into wonder, it strips away all of our pretense, and it reminds us 
that we're not alone. Here's the greatest irony for Zechariah. He is in the holy temple, the holiest place for God's people. And the point of that was that God's presence was said to dwell with them. So here he is, as close to God's presence as one could possibly be. And he doesn't feel it. He doesn't see it. Zechariah was from the right family, and he had the right training, and the right convictions, and he had his right moment in time. And yet he was still far from God. I'm going to show you a picture of somebody who probably doesn't need to be introduced. His name is Matthew McConaughey. He's an incredible A-list, incredible actor in Hollywood. And uh, he has a very unconventional story because he comes from a small town in Texas, never really took any acting classes and found himself on a meteoric rise. He got cast into John Grisham's uh, kind of first book as it's portrayed to film, A Time to Kill. And he went from obscurity to international stardom overnight. He said he went from being able to go anywhere and nobody knew who he was. And then all of a sudden, everybody knew who he was. And that he wasn't handling that fame very well. In his memoir, Matthew McConaughey writes about a time where he needed to go into a period of solitude and silence and recalibration for his own soul. He says it so well, I want to read it to you. He said, the monastery of Christ in the desert sits in miles of undisturbed desert on the banks of the Chama River in Abiquiu, New Mexico. Thirteen and a half mile dirt road from the highway leads you to there's a usually washed out area so you can't bring your car. Thomas Merton loved it there. He said the monastery was a place where people can go to readjust their perspective. I read about it in a book and thought, that's what I need at this time, a spiritual realignment. I was all messed up in the head, lost in the excess of my newfound fame and struggling with a non-deserving complex. My now ruthless existence not only had me searching for my bearings, it was now bearing down on me. How could a working class kid from Uvalde, Texas, be deserving of all this opulence and accolade? I didn't know how to navigate the decadence of my success, much less believe it was mine to enjoy. I didn't know who to trust, including myself. And in the book, the brothers said, if you can get to us, just ring the bell and we'll take you in. A good friend and I drove from Hollywood to that dirt road where he dropped me off and I made the 13 and a half mile march to the monastery. I arrived an hour after sundown and rang the bell. Dressed in a cowl and tunic, a short man named Brother Andre greeted me. Welcome, brother, he said. All travelers have a place to stay here. I washed up and went to the group dinner where psalms were read aloud and talking was strictly prohibited. Later, Brother Andre ushered me into a small, simple room with a cot and a sleeping mat on the floor where I would lay down for the night. The next day, I said to Brother Andre, I need to talk to someone about some things that are going on in my life and mine. Do you know who I could talk to? Yes, he said, Brother Christian would be a good man for you to talk to about such things. I met Brother Christian and we went for a long walk in the desert. 
I unloaded my feelings of guilt and the low and lecherous places in my mind had been traveling, the perverseness of my thoughts. And since becoming famous, I professed, I've tried to be a good man, to not lie, to deceive myself, to be more of pure of heart and mind, but I'm, I'm full of lust, objectifying other people and myself. I do not feel a connection to my past, nor do I see a path to my future. I'm lost. I don't feel myself. I shared the demons of my mind for three and a half hours with Brother Christian. I took myself to the woodshed. He did not say a word, not one. He just patiently listened as we wandered side by side through that desert. At hour four, we found ourselves back at the chapel, sitting on a bench just outside the entrance. And now weeping, I eventually came to the end of my confession. We sat in silence while I awaited Christian's judgment. Nothing. Finally, in the unrest of stillness, I looked up. Brother Christian, who hadn't said one word, looked at me in the eyes and almost in a whisper said, me too. Sometimes we don't need advice. Sometimes we just need to hear that we're not the only one. Only silence can do that kind of spiritual direction and realignment of your soul. It teaches us that God has not abandoned us, that God is indeed with us, that we're not alone. Henry Nouwen puts it like this. He says, silence is the discipline by which the inner fire of God is tended and kept alive. And so as we begin the what's normally chaotic season of Advent and of building in anticipation for Christmas. My first invitation to you to find some humility in the midst of the insanity of these days is to consider this for homework. Consider five minutes, a quiet place, a silent meal, or an overnight retreat. Maybe you want to jot one of these things down right now and consider what it is that the Spirit of God is nudging you to do. It could be as simple as five minutes of quiet. It could be finding a sacred space. It could be even as a family, or maybe if you're usually eating your meals alone to not watch television or to read, but to sit and to feel the weight of your soul. Or maybe you need to take a place where you have your encounter in an overnight retreat. What I do know is that there's something about the silent treatment that changed Zechariah and will change us. The effect on Zechariah is that he named the baby John as God had told him to. People objected because they're like, John's not a family name. How are you doing this? And yet he knew he was going to call him John because John means... God is gracious. 
what Zechariah discovered through those nine months was the graciousness of God. And that Zechariah is not the main character in this story. He is at best a supporting actor. Let's pray. Eternal and loving Father, we need to learn how to listen. I pray that you will usher us into a greater sense of wonder. That, Lord, you will strip away all of the pretending and pretense that we do and use with the manipulation and the cheapening of our words. And God, I pray now in a moment of silence for us to be reminded that you're still with us. So in this moment of silence, come Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for the beginning of a realignment of our souls. And we pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ.